If you've uh, ever managed to plough your way through the thousand or more pages of Lord of the Rings, uh, you'll get to the final volume, The Return of the King. Uh, this is my old copy. It costs 95p, so that tells you how old it is. Uh, and you find the story actually ends about two-thirds of the way through the book. Uh, you're then confronted with around 200 pages of appendices that cover the background to the book, the family histories, the languages, and a whole series of other things that are not part of the main story, but fill in a few blanks and answer a few questions. And I must admit that when I looked at this passage today, um, it felt a little bit like that. Uh, we have all the big events that are crucial to the story of Jesus happening on either side of it. We've, uh, if we've been reading our way through, we've seen the raising of Lazarus, we've seen the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we're about to come to the Last Supper, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. But in these 13 verses that we were given this morning, um, not a lot seems to happen. Uh, it seems to be more about diary management of the big events to come than the events themselves. It is effectively the story of two bookings. Firstly, Judas meeting up with the chief priests to book a time for them to arrest Jesus. And then Peter and John booking a room for Jesus to have his final meeting and meal with his disciples. But if you know the ending of The Lord of the Rings, you'll know that uh, Gollum, who's the baddie, who has been absorbed and influenced the dark power of the ring, and Frodo, our hero, are actually both essential players in the ring's destruction and the salvation of the world. And in the same way, these two appointments, though made with very different motivations and with very different hopes in mind, were in fact both vital steps in fulfilling just one magnificent plan and the greatest story of all, which is the perfect love-filled sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I'd like to have a look at the story in two different ways. Firstly, to dive into the detail of the two bookings themselves and put them in the context of Jesus' final week on earth. I then want to take a step back and reflect on that one plan that they helped to fulfill and help us to remember just what an incredible God we have and how in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, he chose the most amazing way to reveal both his holiness and his love to us. But before we get too theological, let's travel back to the first century Palestine and uh, look again at the final week of Jesus. On the final week, on the Friday before our passage begins today, we know that Jesus arrived in Bethany to stay at the home of his old friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus, the one who he had just raised from the dead probably only a few weeks before the events we're looking at. Jesus then uses their house as a base camp for his final week in Jerusalem, almost certainly returning to Bethany every evening. Now, what you can't quite see on this map is there is a scale somewhere, which seems to not work when it's published, which shows that Bethany is only one and a half miles from Jerusalem. And so it's close enough to come and go every day without too much hassle, but far enough away to be out of the worst of the Passover crowds. It could therefore be a safe place for Jesus to relax, have time with friends, and teach in a more intimate way. As you can also see, the route in and out of Jerusalem takes him straight past the Mount of Olives. And that became Jesus' favorite place to stop and pray. And you can see why often he chose to pause there on his way back to Bethany in the evenings. <coughs> so having arrived on the Friday, the next day was Saturday, which is the Sabbath, 
and therefore a day of rest. And the Gospels don't tell us anything about what Jesus did that day. But he probably, might have, he probably would have stayed in Bethany, maybe gone to the local synagogue. We don't know. But it's on Sunday that Jesus kicks off his final week with his formal entry into Jerusalem, which we will remember next Sunday on Palm Sunday. From the human perspective, this was his biggest triumph when it, when it seemed that all of Jerusalem came out to cheer him and proclaim him their king. But as we know, Jesus takes the weak in a very different direction. His focus is on pleasing God and not on pleasing men. And so the following day, on the Monday, he goes to the temple, and if you remember, he clears it, he throws out the traders, cleansing it and declaring it a place of prayer, not a place of trade. On the Tuesday, he seems to spend most of his day teaching, initially in Jerusalem, and later on the Mount of Olives on his way home. This is when he tells a number of challenging parables about all there is to come, stories about all there is to come. He talks about the fall of Jerusalem, the signs of the end of the age, and tells the parable of the sheep and goats. It's all quite meaty stuff, and Matthew in particular focuses on it. He actually spends nearly a fifth of his whole gospel on that one day's teaching. The gospels then are silent about Wednesday, Jesus may well have based himself back in Bethany. It could be the day when Jesus was anointed with expensive perfume. And it could also be the day where our passage starts, uh, where our passage starts with Judas's trip into Jerusalem. We're not quite sure. But what we do know is on the Thursday morning, the following morning, that's the day when Jesus sends Peter and John into the city to prepare the upper room, with Jesus and the rest of his disciples following on later that day for the Last Supper. So with that as background, let's look at the first part of our story and the betrayal of Judas. We know from the Gospels, and it's said in our passage today, that the Jewish leaders were desperate to find a way to get rid of Jesus. And him setting up camp in and around Jerusalem gave them an excellent opportunity to do this. But they were also very aware that this was no ordinary time. This was Passover. And at this time each year, Jerusalem swelled enormously. There were at least a quarter of a million people there, and possibly many, many more. But not only packed, it was highly combustible. The gathering of all these Jews led to a huge rise in tension of nationalist fervor. When you add to that the fact that Passover is the festival of redemption, it's the anticipated time for the Jews when the Messiah would come and rescue them from the Romans. You can see why in modern parlance the threat level was red, critical. And at the centre of all that fervour was Jesus. The recent raising of Lazarus from the dead had lifted him into superstar territory. And so many Jews hoped that Jesus would be the one who would fight the Romans for them. And that is why, as we will remember next Sunday, on Palm Sunday, they shouted, Blessed is the King of Israel, when he rode into town. And that's just a few days before our passage today. The priests, therefore, had a real challenge. To arrest Jesus publicly risked a riot and then a consequential crackdown by the Romans on the people and also the priests. But to do it quietly and privately, they had a very real challenge of how to find him amongst all the crowds. I always used to struggle with that, with understanding why they just couldn't find him. But whilst Jesus may have been very well known, we have to remember that this was before Facebook, 
It was before 24-hour news. It's before mass media when everyone's face is published and available and everyone's whereabouts known. It's actually really difficult. Today is the 25th anniversary of the uh, starting of the Rwandan genocide. And all that time ago, I spent a year working in the refugee camps after it. And without going into all the politics of a complex issue, we, know that a number of, we knew at the time that a number of leaders of the genocide were hiding in the refugee camps. One of the most evil of those was, in fact, a white Belgian mercenary who had helped plan and train for the genocide. And even though there were about half a million of people in the camps, you would have thought that one white face would be relatively easy to find. But despite the fact he was one of the most wanted men in the world, he managed to live in those camps for a number of months without being captured. You see, going in heavy-handed would have caused riots and even more death. But trying to find where he was staying each night was impossible without inside knowledge. And that is why Judas was so important to the temple guards and the chief priests. If a member of Jesus' inner circle could show them where to find him in a quiet moment, then they would be able to capture him quickly and quietly. Over the years, people have put lots of ideas for why Judas did what he did. But the truth is, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It gives us some clues, but it doesn't tell us. All Luke says is that Satan entered Judas. Throughout the whole of Luke's gospel, he only mentions Satan twice. Firstly, at the beginning, when Satan tempts Jesus in the desert and tries to stop his ministry before it's even begun. But when he fails, Luke tells us that Satan then left Jesus until an opportune time. We then hear nothing of the devil until now, when he clearly believes the opportune time has come. Having failed to prevent Jesus' ministry starting, Satan now seems to believe that killing Jesus is the best way to stop his plan to save the world. And so Luke tells us he acts. What can we read from this? Well, I think it's important that none of the gospel writers give clear human reasons why Judas decided to kill Jesus. They must have been there. Judas had free will. He was not possessed in the sense of being out of control. But the gospel writers, but to the gospel writers, his personal motivations were unimportant. They clearly see the betrayal not as a political or human thing, but as a spiritual battle. And it's a spiritual battle that Satan loses. Whilst he thought he was choreographing Jesus' downfall, in fact he was, as we will see shortly, simply helping fulfill God's amazing plan for victory. And so we find ourselves, possibly on that Wednesday, with Judas making his excuses and heading into town. As the treasurer of the group, he would have had many reasons to excuse himself, and he may well have needed to head into Jerusalem to buy the lamb for the Passover meal. And whilst he creates the time to meet the, and whilst there, he creates the time to meet the chief priests and temple guards and to agree his deal. He then presumably returns to spend the night with the rest of them back in Bethany. We then wake up on Thursday morning, and Jesus must know the end is fast approaching. He wants to celebrate his final night with his closest 12, to celebrate an early Passover, to teach more about his impending death, and to introduce the concept of what we now call communion. 
so that we can remember his sacrifice and what he was about to go through. So why all the secrecy with Peter and John? Well, remember, he is probably aware of what Judas has done. And a quiet meal in a quiet house late at night would have proved a perfect place for the priests to make their arrest. But Jesus sees his meal with his disciples and the time afterwards on the Mount of Olives as vital. And therefore, he cannot let them be disturbed. So instead of them all going off together, he just asked his two most trusted disciples, Peter and John, to make a trip into town. Their job is to find a room that Jesus has already booked and to prepare a meal. To keep it secret, he simply says to them to go into town and follow the man carrying a water jar. Now, that may seem rather vague, but in fact, it was extremely rare for men to carry water jars. This is a woman's work in those days. Men would carry wine in wineskins, but would expect women to carry water in the big, heavy clay jars. I reckon probably much as was usual uh, in those days where women get a bad deal. In fact, not just in those days, um, as well as working in the refugee camps, I spent a a while working in a rural hospital in Uganda. And I remember one day a man came in with a really bad back, and we asked him how he did it. He said, oh, it's my own stupid fault. I should never have attempted to lift anything so heavy. I was just trying to be kind. So my friends and I were just helping to lift a heavy weight onto my wife's head for her to carry. Um, The point is, anyway, the world doesn't change much, does it? Um, Was that no other men would be carrying water, so this man would stand out. And Peter and John follow him to the room. Now, we don't know who owned that house, but there's a good chance that this upper room is also the same upper room that the disciples go to after the crucifixion when Jesus appeared to them. It may well also be the house that's owned by the parents of John Mark, who went on to travel with Paul on some of his journeys and wrote Mark's Gospel. Whichever, wherever it was, having checked the room was okay, Peter and John would then almost certainly have taken the lamb, which may have been bought by Judas earlier, to the temple to be sacrificed, to prepare for the meal. Now, technically, they were actually doing this a day early because Passover was the Friday, But it was not unheard for people to celebrate on the Thursday. It could happen either day. So they have gone to the temple and they would have presented their lamb for sacrifice. Now forgive the gory details. We will come back to the symbolism shortly. They presented their lamb to the priest who would then have cut its throat ensuring the blood was captured in a golden bowl. The bowl would then be passed from priest to priest until it was poured on the base of the altar as a sign of God's covenant. The lamb would then be spread out and hung on hooks so that it could be skinned and its innards removed and burnt as an offering to God. And throughout all of this, huge care was taken to ensure that no bones were broken. So Peter and John would have gone through that process and then would have returned to the upper room and waited for the others for what then became the Last Supper. So that's the nitty and gritty of of the of activity in that week in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. But sometimes it's also good to pull right back from the detail and take more of a helicopter view of what is happening. For For us to remember that although those two bookings were made for very different reasons, with very different goals in mind, there was only ever one plan that was going to succeed. And that was God's plan. I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, 
I could never quite get my head around why Jesus had to die. And by that I mean, why did God do it? I'd been well taught. I went to a good theologically strong evangelical church. So I understood the theology of the crucifixion, the theology of God's holiness and the need for judgment. I understood the Old Testament stories of sacrificing lambs, of the scapegoat, which would each year took away the sins of the people, of the symbolism of Abraham and Isaac, and of the Passover itself. So I sort of understood God's holiness, I understood the need for judgment, and therefore our need for forgiveness. And I sort of understood God's grace and love delivered that through what Jesus did on the cross. But the thing I couldn't ever get away from was that sense that somehow God might have boxed himself into a corner. That having created the world with all the best intentions, it had somehow all gone a bit wrong. And he was left with no choice but to sacrifice Jesus to get it back to the way he'd meant it to be in the first place. That he loved each of us so much that uh, I understood that, that he decided the cost of the cross was worth paying just to get it all better. But the reality couldn't really be further away from that. You see, God was never boxed into a corner. The cross had always been his plan, not to get himself out of a hole, but as the clearest way to show us, to help us understand and experience both his holiness and his love. The cross is the single place where we see both elements of God not in conflict, but in perfect harmony. The cross is the place that God chose to show us once and for all his majestic holiness and his total, infinite and unending love. The theologian Emil Brunner put it perfectly. He said this. He said, The cross of Christ is the event where God makes known his holiness and his love simultaneously in one event in an absolute manner. It is the only place where the loving, forgiving, merciful God is revealed in such a way that we see that his holiness and his love are equally infinite. It consists in the combination of inflexible righteousness with its penalties and transcendent love with its rewards. Now, that's a bit heavy. I get that. Let me just say a bit of it again, and then we'll try and unpack it a little bit. It is the only place where the loving, forgiving, merciful God is revealed in such a way that we see his holiness and his love are equally infinite. It consists in the combination of inflexible righteousness with its penalties and transcendent love with its rewards. As Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, God has already spent 2,000 years forming and teaching a group of people in preparation for this one event. The Jews had got to understand about God's holiness. See, they knew they could not even speak his name. They could not enter his presence. Even Moses had to hide his face from God. They also understood the need for sacrifice and redemption. The most powerful example of which was the, the rescue and redemption from Egypt under Moses, which they remembered and celebrated each year by the sacrifice of a lamb or goat at Passover. So now, 
At this point, 2,000 years ago, having had 2,000 years of preparation, God brings his plan to fulfillment. To make, and to make sure we really get the message that the cycle of sacrifice after sacrifice can end, he sends the one final perfect sacrifice, Jesus, to die at Passover in Jerusalem. Now, a moment ago, I went into a bit of the gory detail about the sacrifice of the lamb by Peter and John on Thursday afternoon. And while some people would have sacrificed on Thursday, the vast majority of the pilgrims would have taken their lambs and goats for sacrifice on Friday. And there would have been thousands upon thousands of them. Now, the Mishnah, which is the record of sort of Jewish rules around these things, records that when Passover fell on a Friday, this sacrifice of thousands of lambs would take place during the ninth hour, which is around three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, as we look ahead to Friday morning, we see that Jesus, Jesus was nailed to the cross at the third hour, that's nine o'clock in the morning, that it was at the sixth hour that darkness came over the land, and Jesus died at the ninth hour, at 3 p.m. Therefore, at the very point, thousands of lambs were being ritually slaughtered in the temple, their blood being poured out on the altar, their bodies being strung on hooks, so Jesus, the one perfect Lamb of God, was strung on a cross, pouring, blood pouring from his wounds as he became the one sacrifice for us all. Now, I find the symbolism amazing. How God chose this very hour on this very day at this very point in history for Jesus to die is not by accident, but was by planned choice. But as we approach Easter, I would encourage each of us not to be amazed at the symbolism, but to see past that at what is truly amazing. That we have a holy God who wants us to know him in all his fullness, who wants us to see him in all his holiness, to see ourselves in all our sinfulness, but then to receive his grace and love so that we can approach his throne with the open-hearted confidence of a born-again child. So as you consider the cross this Easter, I encourage each one of us to remember that this was not an act forced on God in desperation, but the most gen generous chosen gift of love in all history. I've barely scratched the surface of this today, so if you're going to read one book this Easter, can I suggest you don't try Lord of the Rings, it's too long, but you try and hunt down a, a copy of uh, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. And uh, this is the single best thing I think you can read on this subject. Um, if you can't read it all, jump in at chapter 4 and read chapters 4, 5, and 6. It's quite a heavy read, but when I first read this many years ago, it totally transformed my understanding of God, the crucifixion, his holiness, my sin, and his love. And so I'll finish just with a few words from John Stott in this book. He says this, The cross is not something negative forced upon God against his better judgment, but the wonderful way in which he can express his holiness without consuming us and his love without condoning our sins. So as we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection over these coming two weeks, I encourage us to remember the, the cross was not God's escape plan from a world gone wrong, 
but instead the one place where he reveals his perfect holiness and his infinite love in one everlasting and wonderful gift to you and to me. Amen.